welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 75 for October 2017. I'm your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey. With me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGuinness. How you doing, Mike? Wait a minute. How do I know you're not fake Quinn trying to pretend to be real Quinn? <laughs> I'm real Quinn slash fake Carrington, maybe. <laughs> well, I'm really confused. How are you, Quinn? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm ready to uh, reconstitute our audience after the damage that uh, <laughs> the uh, he who sh- whose name shall not be spoken did uh, last month. Wow, that was, uh, yeah. I mean, all of our favorite Apple II technologies. Nope, nope, nope. Don't like that. Don't like that. So this is what <laughs> happens when we let an RCR podcast co-host come on the show. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, he was ragging on collectors with his weird fear of commitment agenda. <laughs> and yeah, well, for uh, for all of our remaining listeners, uh, uh, we appreciate you both sticking with us. So man, oh that. man, <laughs> how have you been, Quinn? <laughs> I've been good. Uh, I've been doing some uh, retro computing goodness, which we'll get to later in the uh, much missed tech segment. Is making a comeback this month. Yay. So stay tuned for that. Awesome. Uh, how about you, Mike? I'm uh, I'm doing all right. I've just been uh, enjoying some of the uh, music from our, our uh, interviewee here that we'll mm-hmm. talk to in just a minute. And um, um, have you installed High Sierra yet on any of your Macs? Uh, I have not on my home Mac. We've got it all at work, though. Okay. Um, what little Apple II emulation software stuff that I've got um, on my iMac here at home seems to be working just fine. I was wondering if you'd seen any weirdness about that, but since you haven't, I guess you wouldn't know. Mm, yeah, it's it's a good thing to check, though, because they break random things with every upgrade. They sure do. And we'll talk about one of those things in the news, actually. So, <laughs> uh, right. yeah, but other than that, I'm, uh, I'm doing great. Just looking forward to uh, doing another episode. All right. Well, why don't we uh, dive on into the uh, aforementioned episode and uh, get on with our interview. Hi, I'm Henry Corbis of Ultimate Micro, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right. Uh, this month we have with us um, Seth Sternberger of 8-Bit Weapon. We uh, talked to him uh, once before uh, on the Lawless Legends episode, but today I think we're going to focus a little bit uh, more on the music. They have a, a brand new album out that's made entirely with an Apple II that you should definitely check out. And uh, how are you, Seth? Very good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being on. So, of course, uh, we should, why don't we start with the... Uh 64k question uh, that everybody wants to to ask which is uh, how on earth did you make uh, a music album entirely with an apple II? <laughs> it was very hard and it was a very long process it was a, <laughs> an an evolution to it that started of course uh with uh well michael mann uh, i got in touch with him back in i want to say 2009 when i found out about his apple crate experiment and uh he sent me over a disc and he basically said, uh, before we go any further working together on a project, you have to be able to work on a real Apple II if this is going to work. So, <laughs> but you get a real Apple II, and, you can, and you've got basically ADT Pro will talk. And so eventually I got one, and that we went to the next phase, which was he sent over disk images. And then I said, you know, this is really awesome. You can play an Apple II live, which is amazing, and the sound quality is even more amazing because he's taking those eight bit samples and pushing it through that one bit window. But I said, the problem is if I go out on and perform with this live, I have to 
hit the space bar to go to the actual playing live part. But before I get even to that, I've got to type in commands to load the sounds that I want to use. I said, we need a performance version of this. So I just go on stage, turn on the Apple II, it loads straight to the performance mode, and I'm ready to go. And he did that. And so that was the next step. And then eventually we found out about, um, or we were contacted uh, by Charles Manjin, and he's he was working on a MIDI interface experiment for what became the, the DMS. And so that was the next phase of the evolution was being able to control the Apple II via MIDI, which is a huge breakthrough. So that those are all the things that needed to happen to, to make class apples, the Apple, the world's first Apple II album possible. I mean, I, I could have, and I have recorded entire Apple II songs manually because we had the DMS synth that you play live. So I was able to play it live and, and touch up the timing manually. And then we also have the DMS drummer, which was just, you know, it's a drum machine. So on the, uh, our bits with bites album, the first all Apple II song that we recorded and released was called Apple core two. Cause we were afraid that if we released it as the Apple II song, we'd get sued by Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but to do a whole album like that would be, it, it was obviously possible. It'd just be tedious. So, once we had the technology to do a MIDI uh, combined with that, it became really simple. So we thought it would be really great to do kind of a, a uh, combination of a Wendy Carlos inspired slash. If you ever heard of Carlos Futura did disco versions, Moog disco versions of classical tunes is kind of that combo that inspired us. Uh, and so you have class apples as a result. So it just blew my mind that no one with any of the software that's out there, whether, you know, there's lots of, I mean, there's music constructors that was actually, I think the world's first microcomputer sequencer. Um, nobody had created an album for the Apple II in all these years, in 40 years, you know? So for, for those of us who are a little less musically uh, <laughs> inclined, uh, can you explain what it means to control the Apple II via MIDI? Like, what is MIDI and how does that fit into your workflow? Yeah, so most synthesizers, you can obviously play live. There's things called modules that have no keyboards, and you have to control them uh, with MIDI for the most part. There's other lesser known uh, and older technologies for controlling and sequencing music with different modules and keyboards. But MIDI was created in the in the early 80s, it stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. Before that, there was something called voltage control, which timing-wise was way better, but it was very limited with all the commands you can send to all your machines. So MIDI took over in the early 80s. So every keyboard today has, for the most part, a MIDI port that goes in, out, and through. So you can have all of your equipment, your drum machines, your synthesizers, your sequencers, and your recording equipment all talk to each other in the same language. So MIDI makes the world go round for the most part in the electronic part of the music industry. And, and same so for the recording industry, because you can do a lot of uh, re studio recording techniques where you can sync up uh, different instruments with live instruments easier via MIDI and stuff like that. So MIDI is just uh, the language that all electronic instruments speak. So once we were able to send 
MIDI to the Apple II and have the Apple II understand what it was talking about. That was a huge breakthrough, and, I, and we're getting closer and closer to actually releasing the the DMS MIDI box through Retro Connector very soon. We're just tightening up some loose ends. So, Seth, have you? Uh, there's a, there's an artist, and we we talked about his album uh, a few episodes back. Uh, his name is Joe Ellie, I think it's pronounced, or Eli. He recorded an album called B484 in 1983, and he used uh, an Apple II, a Roland 808, and an Alpha Centauri. Is is that anything like what what you guys have done with with uh, this this um, the Class Apples album? It's very similar, but the the big difference is we only use an Apple II for all sounds directly off the Apple II, where the Alpha Centauri is like a third-party sound card that goes into the Apple II, but not from the Apple II itself. Oh, I see. Okay, so this is created. These sounds are actually created from the Apple II, not a not an expansion card that you could buy and put in there. Yeah, not like the Mockingbird or the Cricket oh. or anything. Like that. Wow, this is okay. that's what makes it extra amazing. Is mm. that. A lot of people actually challenged me. They thought I was a fraud. <laughs> they couldn't believe how good the Apple II sounded right <laughs> off the board. Yeah. So I actually had to post on a few uh, Apple II threads on Facebook a video of me and my Apple II and playing it live so they could see that it was coming out of the Apple II speaker and nothing else was connected to it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. Yeah. We get that actually a lot with a lot of our music, not just the Apple II, also for Commodore stuff because – We've figured out techniques to make the, the hardware, the native hardware, sound like real uh, high-quality synthesizers. So everybody's used to 8-bit computers and video game consoles sounding pretty pretty square and, and bleepy. Mm-hmm. But the Commodore 64, and now, thanks to Michael, uh, the Apple II, you can get higher fidelity sounds than people ever thought possible. So we get challenged all the time that it's not really a Commodore 64 or now a real Apple II. Hmm. Wow. So is is there any kind of post-processing that you're doing? Like, are you cleaning things up or, you know, eliminating pops or anything like that? Not really pops so much, although with the with the Commodore SID chip, there are some some filter pops. But the Apple II, the, the thing that we did right off the bat, as you guys are probably aware, there's a, a lot of high-end noise. Mm-hmm. Yep. When you play it back a little bit, it's like a buzz that comes with everything you you output on the Apple II. So we cut that out right off the bat. Uh, And then for the rest of the the Class Apples album, for the most part, all you're hearing is a little bit of uh, a combination of reverb with delay. And then for a few sounds, we added uh, uh, analog filters over the sound to give it more of a a 70s synth sound on, on a few parts, but that's still very, we used it sparingly. So most of the album, what you're hearing is just the Apple II. And we we had seen on uh, various websites reviewing the album that they could definitely hear a little Apple II in there <laughs> if you listen really hard. But for the most parts, it's other synthesizers layered in with the Apple II. And it's like, you're missing the point. Everywhere we, we, we posted is... Even on the, on the website where we first released it on Bandcamp, we specifically said there is nothing but Apple II <laughs> on this recording. The drums, yeah. the sounds, it's all Apple II, off the Apple II. We explained the the milestones to get there with you know the guys. And so it's just funny how <laughs> the media, as much as even, even when they interview you point blank, they still don't get it 100% right. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's great, though. I mean, if you've got people in disbelief, that's a good sign that you've done something really interesting and, and, you know, pushing the boundaries. Yeah, definitely. So it was a a fun project. It's something that once I did a little research and figured out that nobody had done an Apple II album, I was like, I've, we got to be the first to do this. <laughs> well, you know, in, in uh, I guess everybody else's defense, uh, the Apple II really wasn't known among the 8-bit computers of the day, really known for, for its musical output. Right. So that's, yeah. And um, so let's, can, let's talk about 8-bit weapon sort of more generally. How did, how did, well, first, did you have a, a home computer like back in the 80s? Yeah, a couple of them. The first computer my my dad brought home was a huge Corona uh, portable computer, oh. which was an IBM clone, which was like a huge iron brick with a little <laughs> uh, monochrome gold monitor and one of those detachable keyboards that was really heavy. Uh, it, it could probably sur- survive uh, an EMP and a nuclear blast. <laughs> so heavy duty. And I was like probably nine at the time when I saw this beast. And so, but there weren't any games really for it. It was for my dad's works. But that was the first time I saw a computer in the house that wasn't on TV somewhere. And then uh, at school, one of the teachers had a Commodore 64. And that was pretty cool. And his son was in the Air Force. So he had all these hacks. Uh, games that all the all the people in the Navy were swapping around at the time, apparently through BBSs. Uh, and then uh, around eighty five or eighty six, uh, I moved to a new house, and the neighbor had a Commodore sixty four, and that's really when I fell in love with the Commodore sixty four. And it was more because of the music than the games, because I, I would sit and watch them play. But it was always the title screen music that I was like, "Wow, this is like." this is what should be on the radio. (laughs) So uh, I eventually got my own off of uh, what was known as the, uh, what was it? Uh, The penny saver. I don't know if you guys have that out where you guys grew up, but uh, it was a little, little half page, but thick uh, periodical of just garage sale type stuff that you could call people. It was like Craigslist on paper. And so I got a Commodore 64 back in 85 or 86 and then i went to summer school in 87 and that's when i really got my first exposure to the apple II, and uh i was really surprised at how vibrant the colors were versus the commodore 64 and i didn't even know until recently recently being 2005 that there were only six colors with exception of the double high-res mode but uh people did a lot with the high-res mode and I didn't even know about the whole high bit, low bit color battle, which I learned very quickly about when I started doing the Lawless Legends graphics. <laughs> but the Apple II, I played Oregon Trail. That was just such a fantastic game. Even as education the software, you didn't even notice that you were learning something. <laughs> you know, because it was so fun. Grr, learning. <laughs> so that's, that was kind of the... Uh, the beginning of my computer career. And it was great to grow up in the golden age of computers because you saw all those advances from the like the the monochrome to CGA, which is awful, but it was better <laughs> than monochrome. Going to uh, EGA, which you thought, wow, look at all the colors, what else do you need? And then 
my head exploded when I saw the early Amigas in 85 and seeing like more than 256 colors. And I think we all remember the parrot picture that they always demoed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Battle Chess, when that came out, was mind-blowing. <laughs> and then it just kept going like that. But where today, pixels, polygons, there's so many of them now, it's really hard to see the difference. But in the 80s, you saw every everything as it advanced it was such a huge leap forward for like 10 15 years until the mid 90s and that kind of got boring (laughs) i concur so it sounds like your your path to electronic music was kind of set pretty early on uh where how did you go from from a youth playing with computers to actually making uh electronic music well i had ever since i played or or watched my buddy uh obi play uh adventure construction set stuart smith's adventure construction set which came out for the apple II first um the the title music for that changed my life and it's the most still to me the most epic title music because it goes through lots of, of different uh sections of the song different movements or whatever but uh it's just if you get a chance the apple II version is you get the idea of what he is doing but if you listen to the Commodore 64 version you get the full impact but uh it changed my life and that's what made me want to get into computers and that's what had me start listening to chip music uh or video game music as they called back then um because i would get up before school i remember like seventh grade through and through high school almost I would boot up in the morning after I got out of the shower and I was getting dressed, I'd boot up a game just to listen to the title music that would loop of different games. That was like the early iPod. <laughs> One song per disc. <laughs> <laughs> I confess, uh, I used to do that too, actually. Uh, with some Apple II and especially the 2GS uh, games, a lot of them had amazing title screen music. And uh, yeah, I would just... Did you have the Mockingboard or just straight up Apple II? No, just out of the Apple II. Uh, I don't remember. There was a couple of 8-bit games that I was always really impressed with. I'm struggling to remember. I think California Games had really great uh, music just straight out of the Apple II speaker. Uh, but uh, yeah, getting into the GS stuff, especially I used to just yeah boot up games and leave them on the title screen while I did other things. Yeah, it's funny. The GS and the Amiga really were the precursors to a lot of modern music techniques of sampling uh, that became really popular in the in the mid to late 90s they were doing it in the mid to late 80s so then how did you form 8-bit weapon so what happened was uh i begged my my dad for a synthesizer for a number of years but he's a very conservative businessman and he said you know you need to become you know basically some kind of professional out in the world Music's great as a hobby, but you're it's you're never going to go anywhere. It's never going to you're not going to make money at it either, especially. So <laughs> I, get, I ended up making a deal with them in in my senior year, where I said, "Look, you could give me several hundreds of dollars to go to prom, or I could take that money and get a keyboard." And so I got a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was in '93. I got my first keyboard. Uh, and it had MIDI, so I, I got it hooked up to my computer. So I'd been doing electronic music from 93 to 98. And in 98, you know, the, the internet was already in full swing. First time I was, I was on the internet was in 1995. And the first thing I did on the internet was look up uh, pictures of Devo. 
<laughs> well, who didn't, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so in 98, I discovered emulators and specifically uh, SID players, which blew my mind. It's like, of course, why not just play the music and not have to load up the game? That's genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I started listening to a lot of SIDs. And, and back then, the big, uh, the big technology that is now a flop, kind of like the Betamax, is was a uh, mini disc recorders and players. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember those. So I invested in a mini disc recorder and player and uh I started recording SID tunes to mini disc so I could listen to it in my car through a, a cassette converter jack. You know what I mean? You put the cassette mm-hmm. in, it's got the Yep, yeah. So I did that and then I discovered because I have a uh, what's have you guys heard of the uh, oh actually this might make sense to you. It's great to talk to other nerds. <laughs> so the uh, Bob Yans or Yanis or whatever you want to say, after he created the SID chip and left, he eventually created the chip that's used in the 2GS. Mm-hmm. Are you guys aware of that? Yes. Yeah, the Ansonic, yeah. Yeah. So somewhere before or after that, when he, he made the Mirage sampler. So I own two Mirage samplers. That was the first sampler I bought. So I went into Best Buy to look for, just to look at their video games and software, and they had something called uh, Sonic Foundry Acid, where it came with royalty-free loops. And I only cared about, about the loops. I couldn't care less about the software. I just wanted drum loops that I could record into my Insonic Mirage. So I bought it for like 20 bucks, and it had all these great drum loops. I didn't care about the music loops, because then I'd have to figure out how to pitch it and all that. And that would be a nightmare. So I I would just started experimenting with the software because I got it. And it's like, this is amazing. I can drop my uh, SID files into acid and then beat match up drum loops and make remixes of my favorite SID tunes. This is amazing. <laughs> so I, that, that's how the first eight weapon album confidential came out was it's like a, a dozen or 18 or so Commodore 64 songs that I added mostly drums to because they were pretty well fleshed but if i figured out what key it was in i could add a bass line or something if it needed it so that's what that's originally how ape bit weapon was born because i did this album of remixes and i needed to give it a title separate from my original music act which i just went under seth which is very original <laughs> but people were way more interested an ape at weapon than seth so that's <laughs> when it, the course changed in my music so around 2000, I think in 98 or 99, Electron out of Sweden had created the SID station, which is a MIDI controllable SID chip in a box. So I bought that in 2000 and I started writing my own original music using that. Composer sounds as a, as a hybrid. And so around... 2004 i started uh writing uh music as a band with other people um and then 2005 we released the first all original weapon music which was a hybrid of uh game boy commerce 64 drum machines and other stuff it was another kind of soup of of 8-bit instruments 
And it, and that's kind of the format that we've had since then, because we've since added the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. We have a cartridge that has a MIDI cable coming out of it that lets you control all five sound channels of the NES. We now have, uh, as of four years ago, a MIDI-controllable Atari 400 or 800 XL. Um, and just all, it's just all keeps adding. And, of course, the latest, greatest 8-bit weapon or 1-bit weapon <laughs> look at it is the Apple II, which you would think would be one of the earliest because it's been around the longest. And it's the the uncontested winner winner of the 8-bit computer wars for the most part. I mean, you could argue, yeah, IBM was there, but they're a different animal altogether. But, I, you know, and Apple is... Everybody owns something of Apple at this point for the most part. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the things we like to brag about on the show is that uh, Apple is the only one that survived. <laughs> yeah. So so how did um how did you get involved with Michelle? Has she been been part of 8-bit weapons since the beginning? No. So around the end of December 5th, 2004, I had had started a new location for Club Microwave, which was the first US chip music club. And uh we we'd have other synth pop acts because I just love synthesizer music in general, but for the most part, it was chip music or, or what was known as micro music related uh, acts. So Michelle and her sister and her buddy had shown up that night to watch me play. And actually she told me later that she left before we played because the band that was on before me was so bad. They left, <laughs> but at least we made eye contact that night. Uh, and so uh, about a week later I saw and she actually didn't even have a picture of herself on her profile. But being the nerd that I am, uh, seeing a, a a female actually like my band, I had to check out her profile. <laughs> Checked out her profile, and it said a lot of cool things. She liked classic rock or whatever and all this stuff. But at the bottom of the things she liked, she said Commerce 64 music. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. You never see that. So I sent her an email that skipped all the normal pleasantries of like hey how's it going i checked out your profile you know i see you like blah 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 i went straight for the commerce 64 music <laughs> and i said do you really like commerce 64 music and that, i think that might have been the body of my whole it might have been hi and then do you really like commerce 64 music? <laughs> i think that might have been it <laughs> and she responded said yeah you know uh, her older brother actually had a commerce 64 and when he upgraded to amiga she inherited it so that got the whole ball rolling and talking. And then a week later, uh, I was making her a, a, a spaghetti dinner <laughs> at my place. So uh, then about 2006, oh, rewind. So by February of 2005, our first Valentine's Day, I gave her a Game Boy with LSDJ in it, which is the tracking music sequencer for Game Boy. And part of the Valentine's gift was I promised that I would show her how to use it. <laughs> but that was, I was in the middle of recording the first Ape Weapon album, original music album. And so, and that took up every weekend for like a year, it seems like at least. And so I didn't teach her. So she actually taught everything she knows to herself on the Game Boy. And in fact, she knows way more than I do still. And, uh, her knowledge that she 
shared with me eventually uh, led to the creation of the Bits with Byte album because I was kind of getting tired of using Game Boy because I thought that I had explored it thoroughly. But she eventually joined April Weapon after being in 2000 together ever since. So it looks like, in, in, in just a little callback here, um, you'd mentioned the first thing you looked at um, on your computer was pictures of Devo that she actually got to work with Mark Mothersbaugh. Is that right? Yeah, that's a great story. So I think I want to say it was something along the lines of two weeks after she posted her first couple of songs on MySpace, she got contacted by a guy that was working with Mark Mothersbaugh on uh, what is now Vaporware called uh, Butt Pong. <laughs> and he said, uh, Mark Mothersbaugh needs someone to convert his music to 8-bit and also create some sound effects. Oh, wow. And we couldn't believe it. Like, she showed me the email, and she, she's like, is this real or what? And I said, well, there's only one way to find out. And so, sure enough, I think a week later, she's sitting in Mark Mothersbaugh's office talking to him about the project. And he <laughs> had a stack of uh, Game Boys with the, the Game Boy camera because there's a, actually a secret 16-step sequencer for the Game Boy that you can do little loops with or whatever. And he, uh, he had become a fan of her music. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the experience. Of course, I was extremely jealous. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what an opportunity. And so he would send Mark Buzzbot would send her songs that the world had never heard before. And hmm. we are still the only people that have heard it. Oh, wow. Uh, we'd convert it. He'd send the music as a way as a either a wave or an MP3. And then he'd send the MIDI along with it to send to, you know, the Commodore or the NES or whatever to convert. And then she'd send it back. So it was a pretty awesome experience for her. And, and it was a lot of fun listening to the about 16 to 20 fart noises she created with the conversation <laughs> using the pong paddle. So the pong paddle would let you control the resonance. So you'd go, you know, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, um, and so the, did, is that, is that what led you to like working with, I mean, it looks like you've remixed like erasure, craft work, information society, a lot of kind of big, big electronica bands. Yeah, what's funny is, with the exception of one artist, and I and I still have him on my bucket list, specifically, uh, we've worked with most of the, the electronic artists that have inspired us. Um, Craftwork, uh, we were doing a compilation. A friend of ours uh, at the time, his brother was the vice president or president of Astral Works Records, which I don't know if they're still around today, but was a big deal for for the, the latter half of the 90s into the 2000s through I, as, as recent as 2010 or so. But So he got to go to Kraftwerk concert with his brother because Kraftwerk was on the Astroworks label for their, their Tour de France 2003 album. And he gave uh, Ralph Hooter, one of the two founders and florian they were both there he gave them a game boy with lsdj kind of like what i did with michelle on valentine's day uh but they didn't join his band a couple <laughs> <of years. laughs> but uh they were really intrigued by this concept because it's kind of full circle they did home computer or computer world with all the computer themed music and here is a a a handheld computer essentially generating music all self 
encapsulated. You know what I mean? And so he told them that him and his friends were doing a tribute album of their music. And they said, yes, we want to be directly involved. Uh, and they handpicked all the artists on the compilation. So they picked our song from a, a large list of, of offerings from people in the chip music community. So it's, it was a real honor. And what's kind of cool and not cool at the same time is they got direct, other artists got direct feedback. If Kraftwerk wanted them to fix or change something, because people got one or two notes wrong here or there or something incorrect. And Kraftwerk would send through their, their handlers notes to the artist saying, fix this, <laughs> which would be awesome. But we made, we did nothing wrong. So we didn't get that. <laughs> so it's it's a double-edged sword there. But yeah, it was really cool that Kraftwerk, we have a direct link to Kraftwerk and they've heard our music and they they picked our, our version. Uh, Information Society turned out became fans of ours and we actually got to open for them once at uh, the Viper Room in Hollywood. And that was just an amazing opportunity. And we still keep in touch with two of the three of the guys. Uh, and it's just, you know, I remember in the eighties seeing information society on TV and I became a, a bigger fan in the mid nineties, late nineties, actually, where I just started collecting all their singles and I just ate up all the materials they had of remixes. And I, I never thought in a million years I'd be going to Paul Rob's birthday party. <laughs> He's the, the main songwriter of the band. And that was just like, Michelle and I were like, is this? happening are we actually at this guy's party and we talked to him for a while we got to ask him questions because he got to work with one of the guys for Kraftwerk from Kraftwerk on one of their earlier albums and and we still keep in touch with him and he's had us do two remixes now and then uh just all the all kinds of stuff I don't know it's it's pretty crazy all the all the things that music has has brought us and brought us to I mean, we've traveled through Europe thanks to music and all kinds of stuff. And, That's amazing. And, and the Smithsonian, which is, to me, the chair, just the biggest achievement you could hope for is to have your music on display with your little card explaining the music and who you are in the Smithsonian American the Museum of American Art. Yeah, so that's is that part of the, uh, the Art of Video Games uh, display, the exhibit? That is correct. Yeah, when you go into the exhibit, which is now over, unfortunately, mm. you hear a cycle of three 8-bit weapons songs and two of Michelle's solo computer wow. songs. And there's a little plaque at the entrance explaining what you're hearing and who you're hearing. And then also uh, we were allowed to name one of the songs the Art of Video Games Anthem. <laughs> so how did that come about? So the, a number of things came together with that. We've been longtime friends with Chris Malasinos, who comes from Sun uh, Microsystems. And he I met him at the Classic Gaming Expo in, I think, 2005. And uh, we had remained friends since, and he had invited me onto his show several times, but I just wasn't able to get up there and onto his show like I had wanted to for it was over and he moved out to the DC area, but we always kept in touch. We always bumped into each other because we'd always play at E3 and we'd usually see him there or at some other event related to video games. Like, uh, what's it called? Uh, the game developers conference. Mm -hmm. 
up in the Bay Area. So he sent me an email saying, I can't tell you in writing, but give me a call. So I'm like, ooh, this is going to be juicy. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, it was. He, he basically outlined what the art of the video, what the art of video games was going to be, when it was going to be, and what it means for the gaming community because it really legitimizes and and defeats all parental arguments that video games are a waste of your life. <laughs> <laughs> so. Any parent that says, don't go to video games, or you're playing video games, you're wasting your life, and you should be doing other things, you know, video games are a valid art form. It's official. And <laughs> video, that includes game art, pixel art, music, all of it. Everything comes with it, because you're talking about interactive fiction, interactive movies. And uh, that's it's the most, it's one of the most sophisticated forms of art out there. Because you can't interact with movies like you can with the video games, especially when you're playing adventure games like the old Sierra style, where you are the character and you are making the choices. You watch it unfold because of your actions. So uh, it was just an amazing idea. And then he said, "So uh, we're doing this, and they used a couple of our. They used our Bard's Tale three for the for the video for the display and." he wanted to use our actual Commodore 64 for the exhibit. So our, when you went to the exhibit and you saw the Commodore 64 and that display, it was our Commodore 64. Hmm. Nice. That's cool. So now we have it frozen in carbonite. <laughs> safekeeping. But then after that, at, at the E3 in 2011, a couple of people from the Smithsonian were meeting with Chris and he sent them over to where we were performing. They watched us perform live and they're like, how can we get you guys to perform at the Smithsonian? And we're like, you just, you just did. We're doing it. <laughs> so they had to, we had to basically submit some information to them and the Smithsonian had to review it and approve it, you know? Uh, but after that, uh, like four month, four month wait, they're like, yes, we're going to, we're going to, we'd love to have you come out and perform. So that was just really amazing that we were there for the opening weekend and there was, Lines going around the block to get in, and we played out in the courtyard, which was just beautiful courtyard in the center of the Smithsonian American Museum. Uh, and that was that performance too was a huge highlight. So, and actually, if you go on our Facebook page, is back to 2012 March, you'll see a picture that we took of the audience at the end of the show, where everybody was standing up and had their hands up. It was just. A, a great picture. I'd love to get it framed and put on the wall. It's just one of those parts parts of your life that is so amazing that you're kind of depressed afterwards because you're like, how do you top that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is fantastic. So uh, for this, I guess you top it by releasing the world's first Apple II album. Yeah. Well, there you go. Full <laughs> circle. Uh, so with uh, you know with the development of that album, you've built up all this infrastructure now for you know making apple II music so is there going to be you know more apple II music in 8-bit weapons future oh absolutely i mean uh michelle had released uh in her software single an all apple II version uh that was not MIDI. and uh so yeah we plan to incorporate more apple II sounds into the the general albums in the future we're working on another all commerce 64 album uh, currently a sequel to our uh, disassembly language uh, which is ambient music for deprogramming 
So that was actually the, as albums go for us, our biggest success to date, uh, which I thought was going to be fun for really big fans and boring to everybody else. But uh, apparently is easily the most successful album we've ever released. So after that album came out, most people wanted us to go into volume two, but I, at that, by that point I had learned, had learned that there was no Apple two albums. So I had to do that and be the first. So now that that's, it's back to the Commodore, (laughs) but yeah, there'll be more Apple in the future. Guaranteed. Great. Especially. I love the thing I love the most about the DMS synthesizer is that, uh, that almost that DX seven style bass sound that comes out of it. It's just, super 80s awesomeness yeah so so about the dms software you actually sell that is that right yeah so you can buy a disc image because most people have adt pro these days anyway but if you don't you can buy the diskette which is just a little bit more uh and we'll send you a floppy disk but what we're going to do now is we're going to actually take that down and have charles um he's we're going to do it all through him he's going to do the order fulfillment. And so they'll order the DMS MIDI box and get a disc. That's two sides with the drummer on one side and the synthesizer on the other. So you've got everything you need to make your Apple II album. So we're really close to uh, turning that on and letting people buy that. Cause that's really the, the way to do it. And most people would rather use the MIDI version, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, um, and as far as like buying your music or, or seeing you, do, do you guys still perform live? Yeah. Um, we haven't performed live recently. We've just been busy with lots of studio projects and, and of course the, the day job scenario. <laughs> so, uh, but we plan to get back out into the world and performing live sometime next year would be, would be ideal. So, but yeah, we, we still get, uh, offers to play gigs just, depends on our our schedule month to month it just hasn't lined up yet so where can we go buy class apples and all your other music while we're waiting for you to appear live well there's a number of places you can go to of course itunes that's the place you want to listen to your your apple music on your apple product through the apple <laughs> retail apple, apple, apple. that's the most <laughs> apple you can get to Apple pleasure and after that uh, you can, of course, go to Amazon Music uh, to buy the MP3s. You can also stream through Spotify and Amazon Unlimited. Uh, and if you like the DIY vibe and direct support, uh, you go to Bandcamp, 8bitweapon.bandcamp.com. And that's where most of our albums actually get released first. Actually, all our albums get released there first for about a month and then a month. After that, it goes to Spotify and all the other retailers online. And actually, you can get a uh, subscription to our music for 25 bucks a year. You get all of our entire back catalog, which is like 15 albums or something, hours of music, and every release for the following year. We had three releases this year. That's all included. So you get all the back catalog, which is 15 albums or whatever, and with release two or three albums next year, you get those as well. And then if you don't want to renew, you just cancel at any time. But that's a great way to show your support for independent music and help pay for all of the uh, unique software and hardware we have to buy to stay innovative. 
And b- besides the fact that all this old equipment breaks, like hmm. our station just broke. So we had to send it to a buddy up north to see if he can fix it. But if they couldn't fix it, we'd have to go and buy another, some sort of MIDI interface for the, uh, the SID sounds. So it's, it's a, that's a never ending battle is keeping all these machines alive. And if they die, replacing them. And cause mm-hmm. they, people are getting savvy to it now that chip music, which is blows my mind is somewhat well known in general in the, in the general consciousness of people. Uh, it's harder to buy game boys or Commodore 64s for 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Those days are long gone. So <laughs> yeah, the guys, you know, people, people stream music and that's great. Cause it, you know, the artists still get some monetary support that way, but you basically have to, to have a million plays to make a thousand bucks. Plus the components, some of these, like the SID chip in particular, you know, they obviously don't make that anymore. And, you know, so as, as those die, people are having to cannibalize Commodore 64s to get more of them. You have to, it's, it's, it's kind of sad because you have to buy a beautiful machine to rip its heart out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, we'll definitely have uh, all those links in the show notes for people to buy and subscribe to 8-Bit Weapon. Um, Mike, do you have any uh, last questions? Uh, No, I just wanted to say, uh, Seth, thank you very much for joining us. Um, And um, yeah, it's it's been great talking to you. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. And uh, just a little note about Lawless Legends. We are in the we are in the playtesting beta phase. It's in we've got virtually. 95% 95% of everything working that we want to work. Uh, we've got five people play testing it. We're getting lots of great feedback. We're hoping to have it out before the end of the year. Mm, Looking fantastic. forward to that. Yeah. We'll probably have the whole crew back on to talk about that at lunchtime. Absolutely. Yeah. That's probably a good idea. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks. Sorry. No, listen, that is, that is future us's problem. I'm not going to like let you take away my buzz right now. Okay. Present us is only worried about, you quitting your nobody told you about job? When are you gonna let that go? When you go into business with me? Wait, I'm sorry, going to what with you? Wait, okay. what? <laughs> Work with me on this. We work so well together. Okay, the photographic analysis algorithm is just one of many in a long list of amazing tech that you and I have collaborated on. Think about all the good we could do, all the cool stuff we could do, all the cool things we could make. Please don't say no. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank God, good, because I already filed the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is so cool. We like Waz and Jobs, like back in 76. Wait, who's Waz and who's Jobs? Shotgun Jobs. Well, thank you, Seth, for coming on. That was fantastic. Uh, Mike, why don't we roll into some news? Sounds good to me. Hit the music. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. Right, so our first couple of items, uh, we've got a, a, an Alex Lucazzi theme, uh, one of our uh, <laughs> favorite Australians, and uh, he's got a couple of items uh, that came across uh, his site uh, last month, and uh, I don't think they've been mentioned yet, so I threw them in here. Uh, the first one is he's put up a uh, collection of all of the software that supports the four-play joystick card. So, of course, this is a uh, 2GS card that lets you play with four joysticks. Uh, does it work in the 8-bit apples too? I'm actually not sure. I believe it does, yes. Okay, cool. So 
but yeah, so uh, you know, people have been modifying uh, existing existing games, and in some cases, writing new games to support this thing. And uh, you know, of course, the classic example being Bomberman GS, which was modified to support it. And we did a tournament at that uh, of that at uh, K Fest in 2016, which was awesome. And uh, so anyway, he uh, was observing that there's no list anywhere of all the software that supports that card. So that is now up on his site, and we will link to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading on his website that the four-play card plugs into any Apple II model that contains physical slots. So sorry, Apple IIc people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, uh, that's, that's often the, uh, the uh, uh, epilogue to these stories. Sorry, <laughs> Apple IIc. Uh, <laughs> but we all know it's the prettiest, so that counts oh, yeah, for something. That's true. Um, all right, so this next item is a really interesting one, um, and I'm super glad that he posted this. So uh, uh, the, the item's called Checkpoint, and it's it's a kind of a long story, which he uh, has a nice blog post about here. But uh, essentially, he was browsing eBay, and he found this uh, old uh, piece of this, this collection of hardware and software that someone had put together for educational purposes that uh, is for controlling a remote control car using the Apple II. Oh, okay. And uh, it's it's a neat idea. And the whole package, I guess, went for a bunch of money. Uh, so he didn't actually buy it, but he got inspired to uh, figure out how it worked and uh, maybe recreate it. So he got the seller of the eBay auction to send him pictures of the interface card and you know front and back, and he traced the circuits and figured out how it was working. And software was on cassette only. Uh, and, <laughs> wow. and yeah, yeah. And amazingly, the fine folks at Brutal Deluxe uh, managed to find this cassette. Uh, they didn't have it in their massive cassette collection at the time, but it did eventually turn up. So he analyzed that software to figure out how that was working and so ev- effectively recreated this whole system. And uh, so he built this thing to where he could, he found some old RC cars uh, <laughs> that he, you know, modified and uh, to work with this system, it's, you know, hooks into the car with relays and uh, it's, yeah, it's all very cool and fun. And then when he was all done with it, uh, decided, well, this is neat, but, uh, it's not enough. So I'm going to make a game out of this. So he, this is where the details get a little thin because, uh, the timing of this, he was getting it ready for, uh, one of the Australian shows. I'm not, I think, uh, Oz, K-Fest <laughs> or Wazfest. I, I don't even want to say, cause I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, but one it of the, gets worse and worse. I <laughs> yeah. One of the Australian Apple II shows all he right, wanted to, to, to demo it there. And, um, so yeah, he had uh, so he's put together this game, uh, and there's not a lot of details on how it works, but uh, it involves playing with the RC car in the room uh, with uh, some sort of connection to software on the Apple II, keeping score or or whatever. So I'm calling it an augmented reality-ish game for the Apple II, and uh, it's very cool. Uh, he says he's promised a video in the blog post of this in action, so hopefully that will uh, surface. And if and when it does, we will certainly uh, talk about it here. Remember that um, diecast Apple II Porsche 935 model that we talked about a while ago? Mm-hmm, yeah. I want to see this integrated into one of those. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be very cool indeed. <laughs> Maybe version two. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the uh, next item uh, was one sent in to us by a listener. Thanks for that. We always appreciate interesting links. And this one is called A2OSX, and it is a new multitasking operating system project for the Apple II. So uh, we will link to a uh, forum discussion about this on 6502.org. And which is, you know, a general purpose 6502 uh, group, not necessarily Apple II. 
but we will also link to the GitHub repo of the code for this thing. Uh, it's uh, cooperative multitasking since it's designed to run on an Apple IIe, which of course has no interrupts out of the box. So there's really no way to do preemptive multitasking. But uh, it's a pretty. It looks like a pretty cool uh, thing. There's a call for assistance uh, and testers to uh, to help with it. Uh, it looks like it's pretty complete. They're just looking for testing of some of the more obscure hardware cards and some of that kind of thing. But uh, you know, it's sort of reminds me a bit of like Contiki or one of those types of things. So if you're interested in playing with you know brand new uh, operating systems in kind of the modern uh, mold for your Apple II, this looks like a great thing to play with. Yeah, it says that this uh, A2OS X uh, is designed to work on any stock 128K Apple IIe with no additional hardware. Uh, there's no VBL signal on the IIe, uh, so there's um, no preemptive multitasking available. But I guess they're attempting to use a mouse card, which does have the VBL IRQ, um, and they're looking to integrate that. That's kind of the latest update. They're also looking for uh, testers and uh, people who want to play with sort of, you know, beta software and, and give them feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we'll link to that and people should check it out if they like that sort of thing. Uh, so the last uh, item in this group here is about Kansas Fest. So uh, the last couple of years, uh, We've been videotaping the entries for Hackfest, which is the uh, kind of competition that takes place within Kansas Fest. People spend the whole week uh, building uh, software or sometimes hardware project. Uh, there's not really much for rules besides it has to be done uh, entirely uh, at the show. You can't prepare anything ahead of time. And uh, we get everything from games to wacky hacks to hardware toys to everything in between. And uh in any case, uh, we've been videotaping uh, so everybody can see what's uh, what people are doing. And traditionally, we've posted those videos on the Kansas Fest YouTube page. This year, we had uh, technical problems with the camera setup. Um, the uh, camera, the SD card in the camera that was recording all the video, it uh, wouldn't it wouldn't uh, it refused to to load on my laptop, and so we had to use someone else's laptop. And there was a big panic because all this was happening seconds before we were supposed to show these videos to a room full of people. And so we managed to get the videos to show, uh, but then I never got them dumped to my machine. And it's I'm typically the one who then, you know, edits and, and uploads them to the YouTube channel. Um, so it took a long time to sort all that out because then the SD card went home with Jason Scott, who owned the camera. And it just it took forever to figure out what happened to them and get them uh, posted somewhere. So uh, that finally did happen. Uh, there was some miscommunications involved as well. But uh, Jason Scott has generously uh, created an entry over on archive.org for these videos. And uh, there's a little note in there explaining what they all are. So it's a bit of a different format than usual, but, uh, and, you know, three months late, uh, but at least <laughs> they are up somewhere. So, uh, yeah, those of you who've been asking to see these videos here, they finally are for, uh, 2017. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Next year, uh, <laughs> heads up for anyone planning uh, to enter Hackfest next year for Kansas Fest 2018, the judging will be in the morning, uh, because judging in the afternoon, it's just too tight. We can't get the videos collected and edited and set up the presentation in time for the, uh, yeah, the big presentation at the end there. So, Aww. 
Fair warning. <laughs> Since I'm sure it will be me who gets roped into running this thing again, <laughs> I'm telling you now, judging will be much, much earlier because <laughs> I would like to enjoy my Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Ken Gagney and, and uh, I think maybe Peter as well have, uh, have both talked about on the show in the past how it how um, rewarding and fulfilling it is to be part of the K the K-Fest committee and running things kind of behind the scenes and on the other hand it really kind of eats into just sort of relaxing and enjoying the show so that's completely understandable yeah yeah and these preparations are also on top of the vendor fair so you know year before last when I was trying to also sell my uh 2C ROMs at the vendor fair while editing these videos and preparing the presentation uh frantically uh, an hour before the uh, the final uh, wow <laughs> session that was not that was not a good time but no. uh, we're we're iterating on this this is a, the video recording is a new addition to the process so we're you know we're getting it, getting better at it and remember that Kansas Fest is actually supposed to be about fun and relaxing with other Apple II people. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. So this next item is yours. Speaking of uh, augmented reality, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, with the, the introdu introduction of the uh, iPhone X and iPhone 8 and new AR kit capabilities that Apple is sort of pushing these days, uh, this is a, a – we somebody sent me a, a link to um, – an AR kit program, I guess, or app on the, uh, for your iOS device called Homebrew Club by someone named Jaifu Jang. I hope I pronounced that properly. And it basically allows you to, to, uh, place a bunch of different classic Apple II and Apple III and Apple I and other less important vintage computers, um, on your desk or wherever else you want to put it in your little AR world there. It's uh, available on the iTunes store for $2.99. So, um, and I, I'm not sure that I, it's, I mean, these don't do anything other than, oh, look, there's an Apple on my AR desk, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. It is. Yeah. If anyone hasn't played with augmented reality stuff, it is extremely cool. Uh, when it's, when it's well done, uh, it's, yeah, it's a pretty freaky and fun effect. Uh, so yeah, I look forward to new, uh, uh, augmented reality stuff kind of coming out for iOS now that they've made that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So next up, we got uh, TechCrunch talking about uh, Apple's IPO. What's the scoop here, Mike? Yeah. So the, this PDF obviously has been floating around for many years. Uh, the original um, uh, uh, IPO documentation, I think it's what the prospectus and, and things like that. But um, this is the first time I've actually seen a, a financial expert kind of sit down, somebody who I guess works on Wall Street and posts on uh, TechCrunch, sit down and, and analyze what Apple's IPO looked like um, and what their company, you know, what they were um, hoping to to gain from all of this. And it's, it is interesting. He talks about like uh, the, you know, the, the stock split. And at least back in 1980, Steve Jobs was the main um, um, uh, stockholder. Um, he had 15% of shares in Apple in 1980 and Mike Markle had 14% and Woz had 7.8 and everybody else was kind of below that. So yeah, just sort of a fascinating look if you were kind of interested in the, the, um, history of uh, Apple that isn't necessarily based on the specific computers that they were selling. Cool. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it looks like an interesting read. I haven't, uh, I confess I haven't read it yet, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's sort of IPOs are sort of old hat now because, you know, the tech boom of the late 90s and, and has continued to this day and IPOs are sort of a standard thing now. Everyone expects everyone to get rich and whatever. But uh, yeah, I think back in 
in, in the early 80s, IPOs were still kind of a, a more cerebral kind of Wall Street thing that nobody paid much attention to. And uh, it wasn't uh, such a such a crazy event where uh, secretaries become billionaires overnight or whatever like it is today. So uh, Apple was kind of an early example of that, I feel like. Uh, I remember there was a, there's a famous photo going around. I haven't seen it in a while, but uh, of a secretary who had a fancy car and uh, the, the vanity license plate was uh, THX AAPL. Uh, thanks, <laughs> Apple, using their uh, their stock symbol. Nice. So I always thought that was really clever. Yeah. So this is a quick and easy read. And um, yeah, if you're interested in finances, take a look. Cool. Well, uh, there's a book coming out uh, called Breakout, how the Apple II started the PC gaming revolution. And uh, I can't think about this book now without thinking of a funny tweet uh, from 4am uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's another another book uh, that's also claiming that uh, Atari or someone else started the uh, computer gaming revolution. A lot of people are claiming to start revolutions these days. It's kind of uh, kind of the thing. But uh, anyway, I just go around claiming that I start various revolutions. You know, yeah. over my lunch hour. So yeah, it puts the burden of proof on people on That's other right. people you to prove it out. otherwise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, in any case, uh, Breakout is uh, making such a claim for the Apple II, which of course we heartily endorse and support. And uh, so we got two good stories here. First is on uh, Carmen San Diego. Yeah, so the first one is um, on Kotaku, and it talks about it goes into the history, uh, like you said, of Carmen Sandiego, and talks to the the programmer uh, at Bruderbund. Bruderbund, that Bruder always Bund, confuses yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and he and he talks a little bit about that. And of course, Kotaku does uh, does a nice little write up as they do on a lot of their game stuff. So that's fun to read. Um, and they also had um, a nice write-up um, in the book uh, about um, how Richard Garriott got started. And, of course, everybody, you know, in, in the Apple II community kind of, kind of, I think, knows about how, you know, he programmed all these D&D games in BASIC and went around and sold um, a Calabeth on his own, you know, and um, to, to software stores and plastic baggies and how those things are now worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on eBay. Um, but I think most, mostly these, these articles serve as, as kind of a nice sales tool, sales tool for the book itself. Because, you know, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't sure that I needed like another Apple II history book right now. But after reading this, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more interested and I'm, I'm going to spend the, the money, I think, at least to get the Kindle version. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll be picking this up. Uh, same, same as you. I, I was just sort of like, oh, it looks like someone just capitalizing on, you know, retro computing. It's popular now or whatever. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, just looking at some of the, the blurbs from it, uh, it's actually uh, more interesting than, than I would have thought. So, uh, which I guess is the point of the blurbs and it has <laughs> clearly worked on us. So, yes, uh, yes we're easily influenced. <laughs> yes. Uh, sales plus equals two, uh, I guess. But, uh, I did find it funny that, uh, Kevin Savitz tweeted out this photo of, of that book. Plus, uh, there's another a book called Breakout, How the Atari Boo 8-Bit Computers Defined a Generation mm. is published basically coincidentally with the same title. And uh, yes. I, think, uh, I think David Craddock, the author of the Apple version, went, yep, this is co coincidence and I had no idea, but awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That was the tweet I was thinking of, Kevin Savitz. I uh, mistakenly attributed that to, uh, to 4AM. Uh, so, uh, sorry, Mr. Person, Savitz. I'm sure we don't really <laughs> know who 4AM is, so it could yeah. be Kevin. Yeah. Well, they're both the two funniest people in my Twitter stream. I know that. So I get, I get them confused all the time. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so moving right along. Uh, so if I wanted a copy of Time Zone for the Apple II, uh, Akihabara in Japan is not the place I would think to go. Yeah, well, uh, Akihabara is a um, is a district, I guess, in in Tokyo because Tokyo is big on like districts of stuff where you can do weird niche things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this is uh, the Akih- Akihabara Tokyo district, which houses the world's densest cluster of nerd related storefronts, which just makes mm-hmm. me like I'm drooling. I, I got to go there. Yeah, but um, it's an amazing place. There's a whole <laughs> store that just sells zip ties and another one that just sells heat shrink tubing. It's, it's mm-hmm. crazy. <laughs> But uh, Chris Kohler at uh, Kotaku uh, went through a few of these and, and found some some weird, cool rarities and high price tags. And uh, one of the things that he stumbled across was a copy of Time Zone, which is one of those Apple II games that you know it's it's on Asimov and all the all the um, repositories as disk images that you can download. And I think. Um, Ivan actually did a uh, a Kansas Fest presentation a few years back on how to like uh, make them uh, put them all in one disk image or, or something like that to minimize the disk flipping because it's twelve double sided uh, floppy disks that you play through on this. It's massive. Uh, I just thought it was kind of funny that here in the middle of Japan is a copy of this thing, and and it looks like they have um, a few other rarities like uh, uh, you know the early. Um, Sierra Online titles, Mystery House, and things like that. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, the Apple II did have a presence out there, so uh, I guess we shouldn't be too shocked that there's some of that stuff kicking around. Uh, mm-hmm. It was one of the was one of the few markets where the two plus was was localized. The, was it the the J plus they called it? Yep. Uh, it had a sort of some form of of readable uh, kanji, I guess, on the Apple II plus. Kind of a neat machine that we don't see a lot of here in North America. But uh, yeah, great to see that stuff. Uh, across the ocean looks like uh some of the prices though are just as much as you'll find them on ebay for the um um, mystery house and things like that we're all selling for around 950 dollars 950 dollars yeah not yen that sounds like a lot of dollars for mystery house 100,000 yen Wow, huh? <laughs> right. <That's, laughs> yeah, I guess is it like unopened in box or something? Um, it doesn't look like they were unopened. I mean, they've been reshrink wrapped, hmm. but they're all pretty worn. So, hmm. Wow. Okay. Those are those are high prices. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm clearly in the wrong line of work here. I should be hoarding copies of Mystery House and selling them in Japan. Uh, all right, moving along. Uh, so, uh, uh, as many of our listeners know. Due to my shameless self-promotion, um, I uh, created a, uh, a ROM replacement for your Apple IIc Plus that uh, fixes the beep sound, makes what? it sound more like the <laughs> Apple II, yeah. and also defaults it to uh, 1 megahertz instead of the uh, useful in 1987 and annoying in 2017, uh, 4 megahertz. And uh, so over here on uh, Compsys Apple II, someone has posted a nice little uh, code blurb that... Uh, kind of is a universal uh, accelerator controller program. Uh, it's only a handful of bytes, and it's really cute. So you can put it as like a you know a boot uh, thing on a floppy or whatever, and uh, it will default your 2C plus to 1 megahertz, uh, presumably using the uh, API for controlling the accelerator that's in the uh, CGGA chip on the 2C plus. Uh, but it, uh, the nice thing about this is it also works on other accelerators. So it works on the 2GS. It works on the fast chip from the Mad Bulgarian over there at A2 Heaven, mm-hmm. and uh, various other things. So uh, yeah, it's it's a nice little uh, uh, blob of hex that could be very useful. 
Yep, and it looks like they're uh, it's still um, morphing and growing. And as as people think of more accelerators to try <laughs> it on, they're they're adding and modifying the code to make sure it works on everything. Yeah, this is great. This would be great. Like if you're writing a game, just drop this at the top of your game, and oh yeah, neat. You know, set it to one megahertz, whatever you're running on, and your game will work without people having to mess with their hardware. So uh, yeah, I love that. It's called NormFast. I don't think we uh, mentioned that. No. Uh, we will link to that thread. And if you have a weird uh, edge case accelerator, maybe you have some, maybe you have a Transwarp 2 or one that nobody else has, then uh, yeah, dig this out and add to it. Yep. Uh, all right. So you mentioned High Sierra and compatibility shoes at the top of the show. Uh, what's going on there, Mike? Yeah. So uh, Ewan went up, the um, prolific Apple IIGS programmer. He's written a ton of awesome. Uh, uh, utilities uh, for your 2GS. Uh, he wrote one called Safe2 a while back. Uh, it's an FTP. Um, it's an FTP client, and if you're running a server on your uh, uh, Macintosh, I'm sorry, your Mac. Um, he he put he made a post over Compsys Apple II, letting everyone know that uh, Apple had removed the the inbuilt uh, FTP server from from their operating system. So it, you'll need to go and and I guess either install your own or um, you can download the FTP server app from the I, iTunes Store. It's just no longer there by default. It always makes me a little sad when Apple randomly removes nice, useful little things like that from the <laughs> OS. I mean, that can't have yeah. taken up more than twenty or. 30k in the in the <laughs> distribution like why would they just remove that i don't know right that's just it's a weird decision to make but i guess it's something they don't have to support anymore then. yeah i guess so oh apple uh all right so it looks like uh cider press has been updated yeah yep 4.0.2 it's uh looks like some bug fixes and a few improvements to the handling of uh, um, packed super high-res images um, and yeah, uh, not a, not a whole lot, I, I think, um, of brand new or fancy stuff that you're going to see in the front end. But if you are a fan of Cider Press, then 4.0.2 has been updated and the new live utility, the, uh, the image, uh, management portion of it, um, that's been updated as well with some fixes. Cool. Still no Mac version. Uh, well, <laughs> nope. <laughs> No, I mean, it's a, it is a great tool. It is a great tool. And I actually, I do run it on my Mac under uh, wine bottler, which uh, does work uh, just mm -hmm. fine. Uh, but it's, it's a little, it's a little fussy to set up, but uh, in a pinch, um, you know, for most of my development, I just, I still use Apple commander just cause it's uh, command line and it's trivial to use. But uh, uh, for, you know, if I have a bunch of organizing or something I have to do on a bunch of disk images insider press is definitely still the best way to do it. Right. Uh, all right, so this next item is a uh, web-based 6502 assembler, and uh, it's interesting that you linked to this, Mike, because I have actually used this quite a bit myself um, for various 6502 projects. It's a nice little platform agnostic uh, assembler. You can just uh, type a blob of uh, source code into one side of the window, and it assembles it in the other and shows you the object code. Uh, it's useful for uh, all kinds of stuff, and uh, it'll go the other way as well. You can post object code, and it'll disassemble it for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you just needed to quickly look up some opcodes or something in a pinch, this thing uh, is pretty handy. Yeah, this one's been around on the web forever since uh, 2005. Yeah, and I know that this is not the only one available. It's just one that I happened to stumble across. And, you know, we were talking about NormFast and, and the code is being posted directly to Compsys Apple II. Uh, and this is a kind of a quick and easy way to, to run the code right there. So Yeah. 
Yeah, and actually when I was working on uh, Veronica, my homemade 8-bit computer, um, I actually used this exact web-based assembler to uh, generate some of the uh, ROM code. Uh, it was just a, uh, I needed to you know paste the hex directly into uh, the EEPROM tool that uh, was burning the ROMs, and it was just easy to copy-paste out of this tool, you know, write my source code, paste the source code in there, and then copy the object code into the ROM, and uh, it was kind of a, before I had a full, you know, build pipeline up and running for that system, it was a, a good uh, workaround to get uh, the actual compiled code in. So, yeah, it's a nice little thing. Now you can run your own 6502 code on the very assembler that Quinn used on Veronica. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's actually got a little debugger in it, too. You can actually step through code, which, uh, again, in a pinch, you know, is kind of neat, kind of handy. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so uh, now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> friend of the show, uh, Antoine Vigneault, uh, has been uh, collecting all of the adult-themed uh, Apple II software for both the, uh, the 8-bits and the 2GS. So, uh, yeah, if you want a list of that, uh, now there is one. <laughs> yep, all the, uh, all the the naughty 8-bit Apple II software is, is now in one place. and uh, <laughs> um, You can even get at the very bottom of the list, there's one simply called x.zip, and it's all compressed into... One little file for you, and um, if you do download this, we don't need to hear about it. <laughs> yes. I will say there's more of it than I realized. <laughs> right? <laughs> there's well, People were busy <laughs> back in the day writing this stuff. Oh, gosh. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Looks like a new Call Apple is out. Yeah, so the latest uh, Call Apple magazine is available as a PDF to download. All you have to do is be a member of Call Apple. Go to their site, log in. Uh, sign up, log in, and uh, it's twenty seven ninety five US dollars every year. You get discounts on their 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 um, new books and software, and you get a free copy of the latest Call Apple. It includes uh, Kansas Fest twenty seventeen review, twenty nine years and counting, um, an Apple an afternoon spent in Apple Sauce, um, the Apple II disk browsers reviewed, three D demo, and sixty five hundred two assembler, all kinds of great stuff. So check that out. Awesome. Yeah, that uh, that three D demo. Just going to call that out. Uh, that's been uh, uh, that's been getting posted on uh, the Apple II enthusiasts Facebook group quite a bit. Uh, the mm-hmm. guy working on that's doing great stuff. He's basically yeah, he's building a three D engine, and uh, it's it's really looking good. Uh, he po- continues to post really impressive videos of that. So uh, nice to see that written up in Call Apple. Awesome. Well, it's a good month for um, Apple II magazines. Uh, the longest-running uh, Apple II magazine, Juiced GS, has shipped its latest issue uh, with the lovely uh, cover photo from the uh, Kansas Fest 2017 uh, gathering, which is, of course, a tradition there. They post a cover photo involving everyone who contributed that year and uh, always with some fun theme. This time around, it's the uh, 40th anniversary of the Apple II, so they're throwing a birthday party for the Apple II and uh, sort of the photo is kind of shot from the Apple II's perspective, so just kind of just kind of adorable. So uh, definitely, uh, definitely check that out if you're not already a Juiced GS subscriber. We'll link to that so you can sign up for it. And uh, looks like Ken Gagney, editor in chief over there, has got a little uh, present for us. Is, is that right, Mike? Yeah, so a few months back, we ran another audio clip that he did uh, interviewing John Brooks, and um, mm-hmm. that went over really well and kind of helped them, I hope, sell a few issues, and people responded really well at our end to that. They enjoyed that, so Ken has sent along another audio clip of an interview that's included in this month's Juice GS, and this is uh, with Sean Fahey. He is uh, talking specifically uh, about the garage giveaway, and I'm sure they cover plenty of other topics, so here is that audio. 
Hello, this is Ken Gagney, Editor-in-Chief of Juice GS, the last remaining print publication dedicated to the Apple II computer, found online at www.juiced.gs. This past summer, I attended my 20th Kansas Fest, the annual Apple II Expo held in Kansas City, Missouri, and a mainstay of most of those events has been the Garage Giveaway, organized by Sean Fahey and James Littlejohn. Sean and James, two Midwest Apple II users, have for years been traveling the country salvaging every Apple II they can get their hands on. Whether it's a giant lot being donated from New Jersey or Seattle for which they rent U-Hauls and drive it back to Kansas City, or it's just a small local user group and somebody who's downsizing, retiring, or moving and wants to get rid of their own personal collection. What do they do with all this hardware and software and documentation? They bring these literal tons of artifacts to Kansas Fest and give it away for free. For many people, this is a reason to come to Kansas Fest, where they can find those long-lost software programs, manuals, or floppy drives that they've been looking for their own personal setup. This generosity comes at a cost, not to the recipients, but to the benefactors. All that traveling and storage ain't free. And for that reason, this year's garage giveaway was advertised to be the last. About a month after Kansas Fest, I sat down with Sean Fahey to talk about the history and future of this event, as well as his motivations for doing so. The full interview can be found in the September 2017 issue of Juice GS. That's Volume 22, Issue 3. What you are about to hear is an excerpt of that interview. Hey, Sean. Hey, Ken. How you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, I can't complain too much. <laughs> Thank you for taking time out of your Sunday to chat with me. I appreciate it. No worries, man. So I remember going to Kansas Fest and you inviting people over to your house to help clean out the garage. What is the history of that event? When did you start inviting people to help you get rid of some of this stuff? Probably it was around uh, 2000 or 2001. Might have been me even before that. I started going to Kansas Fest in, I think, 98 or 99. It was a great experience. People were very welcoming and sharing with me. And I had a garage full of equipment, so I thought I'd reciprocate. So a lot of people have a lot of Apple II equipment, but eventually it gets to a point where they either stop collecting or they need to actually downsize. Instead, you went all in and tried to grow your collection as big as possible. How did you decide to go that way? It was an accident. When I got back into the Apple II scene, you know, originally I uh, had dropped out back in the day, went maybe a PC. For several years, I was totally away from the Apple II. And then one day I found an Apple one, the emulator online, and I downloaded it. And then this fit of nostalgia kind of took over. And uh, I decided to, to uh, reacquire a, a another new Apple II, a new to me, and uh, picked one up off eBay. About the same time, I joined the local Apple II user group. I joined the local Apple II user group, and I, I told the uh, other attendees, there weren't very many of them, just a handful of people, that I was interested in uh, getting more Apple II equipment. And they said, well, great, we've got uh, excess that we'd like to get rid of. And then next thing I know, the president of the Apple II group was, anytime somebody would call them up and say, hey, we got this Apple II we want to get rid of. Is anyone interested in it? She would send them my way. People just kind of came out of the woodwork once word got out that I was taking all this uh, junk that they wanted to get rid of. And I was more than happy to take it because I, I was really enjoying the Apple too. So uh, before I knew it, uh, I had filled up the garage, my office, uh, part of a storage shed, and it got kind of out of hand. Uh, my wife was on my case about collecting so much of it and you know, justifiably because I really had a lot. Then I found out about uh, 
Kansas Fest, uh, I think it was Delphi at the time, I got invited, invited to attend in the evenings and I uh, made some contacts. And then when I came the next year, that's when I decided that I was going to invite everyone down the following year to my garage to you know, kind of clean it out. When you invited all the Kansas Festers or K-Festers to come to your garage to help clean it out, why did you decide to give all that equipment away instead of selling it or putting it on eBay? It's kind of a personal thing uh, of mine that, you know, if I come by something freely, I'm going to give it away freely. I, uh, I'm not always interested in making a buck. And to be honest, the, the first few Kansas Fests, I was more interested in showing my wife that I was getting rid of things and not really necessarily charging for it. I just wanted to thin out the garage, uh, make her happy. And uh, also, you know, I was getting that warm, fuzzy feeling from, you know, being of service to the community. Uh, but like I said, it's, it, generally if things come my way freely, I'm going to give them away freely. The main reason we started bringing things to Kansas Fest as opposed to having people down for the garage is uh, the attendance kind of went up at, at Kansas Fest for one thing. And it was harder to manage uh, – I mean, it was okay to manage uh, 30-some-odd people coming into the garage. But 40, 50, 60 was another thing entirely. James uh, attended one year, and uh, we didn't really hook up until his second year when he was bringing some products that he was making, we became friends and uh, later on roommates. And we hit upon the idea that uh, instead of having people in my garage, we would just load everything into the big green bus and bring it to Kansas Fest. What have been some of the reasons that people are getting rid of their Apple II collections? Well, you know, some people are just getting older. Uh, some of them are going through a process so they're, where they're downsizing. They're moving into a small, uh, smaller apartment. You know, they don't have a house anymore, so they don't have anywhere to store the the, the gear. You know, they're or they're moving into a, like or maybe a retirement community. Uh, unfortunately, some collections we've picked up have been from people who who've just passed away. Their survivors have no idea what to do with it. Through various connections, they they found me, and you know, I would come and get it. There's been a few people who have just decided they this is a hobby that's not for them after an initial you know nostalgic outbreak some people going through a divorce and uh, they decided they want to get rid of everything there, there's various reasons but it makes me you know, want to encourage people in the Apple II community to have a plan for, for their collection because uh, if something happens to them or they that you know have a plan for what they should have happen to their collection after they're gone or or can't uh, make decisions about it anymore because sometimes your survivors will not want to deal with it all and they'll just send it to a landfill. And if that if that's a troubling thought for you, then have a plan B so that they know what to do with it. What's the farthest you've gone for a collection? We actually flew down to uh, Florida and rented a, a uh, cargo truck uh, down there and, and drove it back. That's when we brought back a you know a huge amount of Macintosh equipment in addition to some Apple II stuff. Uh, sometimes what we'll do is work out with the uh, person if, if they're willing is we'll have it shipped to us. The the man collection it was so huge it took up the majority of a uh, moving van you know the eighteen wheeler variety. And it was tremendously expensive to, to, to do, but he had so much stuff and so much so much of it was of historical value that 
you know, through donations and my own money, we just had it all shipped here in a big old moving van, and it took up the majority of a storage unit. We've been dipping in it to f- for over five years now, bringing it to Kansas Fest. It's it was so huge. It's the biggest collection we've ever brought in, uh, probably short of uh, the one load of uh, fifty Apple II GSs I brought in one time. Can you estimate how much the man collection weighed? Seven or eight tons. Have you ever found something really rare or unexpected in one of these collections? Well, sometimes I'll, I'll find accelerators or, uh, or back when, when they were kind of rare, you know, big RAM cards or, or things that were worth something. I'd always tell the person get, who was getting rid of it, I said, you know, you could sell this and make some money. And every single time they would say, no, I'm giving it to you for you to deal with. Are you ever downsizing your own collection? Is anything that you bring to the garage giveaway actually yours? I'm moving soon, and I've packed up all my Apple II stuff that for my own personal collection. It's all in storage right now. But I foresee the day when uh, probably at least half of it will probably uh, go to the garage giveaway. All this travel around the country to pick up these collections, the transportation and the storage to and from Rockhurst, there are expenses associated with those. You always put out the donation box for people to contribute. And in the past, that historically has not covered your expenses. So you decided to use GoFundMe a few years ago. And if I recall, you weren't all that optimistic when you went in. What was your experience ultimately with GoFundMe? It was very successful. Uh, it allowed me to pay off the majority of like bringing in the, the Michael Mann uh, collection. It allowed me to have some breathing room. So, I mean, the, the storage for the... For the garage giveaway stuff's about a hundred bucks a month. The guy, the guy I get the the storage from, he's really he's a, he's a nice guy. He's a friend of mine. He he's done me the favor of letting me kind of ride on the billing now and then, uh, but ultimately I always have to catch up with him. And uh, the getting the the GoFundMe going that allowed me to pay back a lot of what I owed him. So, uh, but since my wife has passed away, um, you know now a single income. And I, I just can't uh, see myself using that storage for much longer. And that's why we're trying to downsize the rest of the garage giveaway to the point where I don't need to use the storage anymore. And anything that I keep in the future is probably going to go back to a, what I keep in the garage of the new house. It sounds like the donation box last month at Kansas Fest, people were much more generous with it than they usually are. It sounds like you were able to catch up on a lot of your billing. That's true. Uh, Jason Scott uh, kind of put out the call, and uh, a lot of people responded, and, and I'm I'm very grateful and thankful for the community to, for helping me out because uh, I was able to get totally caught up. That took a tremendous burden off my shoulders, and I can't thank the community enough for their help. That recent windfall allowed you to catch up on your billing, but it didn't necessarily create a cushion for the future. Do you see a day when there is no more garage giveaway? We're kind of trying to wind the garage giveaway down somewhat. You know, this last year was the biggest load we've ever brought uh, because we were trying to clean out the storage shed and we could not do it. There's still stuff there to get rid of. We were thinking to ourselves that 2017, 18 might be the last year of the garage giveaway as is. Um, I don't know. Uh uh, depends on the collection, I guess. If it's something of, of value to the community, we'll probably go after it. If not, then we'll probably skip it. I, I would hate to see the garage giveaway go away. I mean, it's it's fun. 
you know, you get to be kind of like Santa Claus and it's nice to be able to share with the community, but, uh, there's a lot of work involved. Uh, we're kind of, I think we're trying to look at the balance between the, the labor and the fun part. <laughs> well, certainly it's fun for us attendees as well. And I don't look forward to the day when we don't have the garage giveaway to look forward to. So my thanks to you and to James for everything you've done over the many years, storing this equipment, collecting it, delivering it and donating it. It's been a highlight of my Kansas Fest. Full disclosure, I've donated to offset the expenses of the garage giveaway, and any Open Apple listener who wishes to do the same may do so online at paypal.me slash a2fan. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. All right, Ken, thank you. All right, thanks, uh, Ken, for, for sending that uh, along, and uh, yeah. we look forward to many more great issues of JuiceGS. Definitely. All right, uh, one more hardware item here this month. We've got uh, a DIY memory card for the 2GS, and I'm glad you caught this one because I was going to post it and actually missed it. So uh, if you're a Hackaday reader, as I am, uh, it's always uh, great to see Apple II stuff show up on there. It doesn't happen very often, so uh, it's kind of like I was liking it to uh, seeing your teacher at the grocery store. It's this uh, weird sort of uh, mixing of contexts that uh, you don't expect. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, it's, someone posted there, uh, they made their own Apple II GS, uh, RAM cart. So there's a little write-up on that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so is this something you're going to, you're going to build? Do you need to build? Uh, I might, if I had my 2GS, uh, physically present, I currently do not, uh, which, uh, which is ironic because I'm actually working on some 2GS software right now, um, but my machine is not physically uh, near me, so uh, I'm going to have to find a way to remedy that here before too long, uh, and I'm sure my dad would very much like me to get that stuff <laughs> out of his basement, but uh, <laughs> yeah, as, as of currently, I don't have uh, access to it, but uh, yeah, it's a ROM one with uh, the original one and a quarter meg uh, expansion in it. So, of course, now nowadays for a few bucks, you can go to eight megs without breaking a sweat. Um, mm-hmm. so I might might do that when and if I get it back. Great. Uh, so, anyway. Speaking of 2GS development, uh, of course, uh, so at 20, uh, the 2017 Kansas Fest, uh, we had Lightning Talks, which was a lot of fun. And uh, they are, um, was it five-minute talks uh, on whatever topic you want? And uh, they're very, very fast. And one of my favorites was uh, Jeremy Rand, who did a uh, five-minute talk on his 2GS build pipeline. So, uh, of course, we've talked a lot about the kind of collaboration that uh, went on between uh, uh, him and me and uh, Carrington to develop uh, an app, a Mac and Xcode-based Apple II build pipeline. And so Jeremy's gone off and done the same thing for the 2GS, and his uh, lightning talk was... Uh, where he built five GS apps in five minutes, and uh, using this pipeline, it's 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 that fast. He built, wow. uh, cl- yeah, he built a classic desk accessory and a new desk accessory and a desktop app and a console app and all this stuff. Uh, it was really cool. Uh, so he's been working on that build pipeline. I actually installed kind of the beta version of it at Kansas Fest and played with it a bunch, so I can attest to how uh, how effective it is. And he's been polishing that up and refining the templates and stuff. So it's now officially released, so you can go get it, and it's got full install instructions. Um, it's uh, It depends on a lot of uh, third-party tools. So the installation of it, you jump, got to jump, jump through a few hoops. Um, you know, it depends on uh, Golden Gate, uh, the kind of uh, bridge to uh, the Orca tools, uh, and, of course, Orca, and it depends on the GS Plus emulator and uh, Profuse for file system integration and some other things. So... 
Um, there's a bunch of pieces you install, but uh, it's not difficult. You just follow his steps and it works. And, uh, you know, you're one, one hotkey build and run on uh, 2GS uh, for any type of 2GS software that you want to write, GSOS uh, and everything. So uh, it's very cool. And if you're going to write, you know, proper uh, desktop GSOS, JS software, uh, this is, uh, I think, the way to go on the Mac for sure. Awesome. Um, and, you know, if you're on Windows, we've got to give a shout out to uh, Merlin32, of course, from Brutal Deluxe, which is an outstanding uh, option over there as well. Um, I think those guys don't get enough love for <laughs> how much work went into Merlin32 and what a great piece of software that is on the Windows side. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that is it for that. Uh, I think that's it for our news items, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, I think that's all we've got for this month. All right. Well, uh, I've got a tech segment, the, uh, much missed, uh, segment that we haven't run in a long time. So, uh, we got a bumper for it. So why don't we throw that in here? Hit that music. Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. So this month, I wanted to talk about uh, GS graphics programming a little bit. Uh, I mentioned I've been getting into GS stuff this year, and uh, I want to talk about the fast GS graphics uh, pipeline because it's it's kind of, if you want to write any kind of game or anything on the TGS, this is essential knowledge. And back in the day, it was kind of uh, mystery voodoo uh, black magic knowledge. Uh, but nowadays with the wonders of the internet, it's fairly easy to find this information and uh, it's uh, it's pretty critical. So uh, as many people know, the Achilles heel of 2GS, of course, is that while it has all this great graphics, the super high res mode, 320 by 200, you know, uh, 16 colors per line, uh, 4,096 colors, 16 palettes, all this great stuff. Uh, the problem is uh, you can only write to the video buffer at one megahertz. And this is uh, for obscure backward compatibility reasons uh, with the Apple II and with the 8-bit Apple IIs. And it's it's really, really crippling for, especially for, I mean, the machine already is crippled with a 2.8 megahertz clock speed. Uh, <laughs> insert your favorite conspiracy theory here as to why <laughs> it was given that clock speed. But uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the further limitation of, uh, the one megahertz speed to write to video memory is, uh, nearly ruins the entire machine, frankly. Uh, but, uh, complicated, weird retro graphics hardware to the rescue. There is a series of things you can do to actually, uh, get around that problem. So, uh, this first appear, I think the first appearance of this technique, as far as I could tell, uh, was in an, actually an official Apple tech note, uh, tech note 2GS70 which is uh, called uh, Tips for Fast Graphics. And uh, they posted kind of the, the first version of this technique that I could find. And uh, it was further uh, elaborated on in the famous uh, French book, uh, 2GS Epiche, uh, 2GS Peels, which, uh, of course, is sort of the, the Bible of two, uh, the day, 2GS demo scene and uh, some of the better games that came out in the mid uh, early and mid-90s. Um, but uh, the technique basically takes advantage of the fact that the 2GS has a series of different pieces that all serve weird, unrelated functions. But when you put them all together, allow you to get around the uh, video memory problem. So uh, one of those features is this thing called memory shadowing. Uh, so the Apple II, in kind of an 8-bit compatibility mode, uh, it runs uh, entirely out of banks 0 and 1. Uh, and of course, the 65816 has access to many, many banks of memory, each of them 64K in size. So the way it works is each bank acts like, you know, an entire Apple II worth of memory. Uh, there's a six, series of 64K banks starting at zero and going upwards. And the first two banks 
our uh, our first sort of Apple II compatibility. And uh, but a lot of the um, a lot of the the firmware and stuff actually lives in uh, upper banks called E0 and E1, uh, and those are kind of reserved special banks in the 2GS. And so a lot of the traditional firmware soft switches and stuff like this, you know, on the hardware page and so on, lives up there. So that would be weird uh, for the Apple 8-bit Apple II software, which of course doesn't know that these far up memory banks exist. So there's uh, this memory shadowing feature uh, that they put in where you can write to banks 0 and 1, and it will automatically write for free to those upper banks. And uh, so that's an, a neat feature uh, on its own. Uh, but then you combine that with the 2GS has the ability to uh, move the stack uh, pointer, which is a very nice feature. So you can put the stack basically uh, anywhere you want uh, in the uh, page, and it also has the ability to move the uh, direct page, the zero page. You can also put that anywhere you want in memory. So you combine all these things, and what you end up with is this very strange workaround where you can put the stack in video memory, and uh, point this, uh, place the stack pointer uh, anywhere you want. Uh, let me well, let me start over. So you can put the the stack in uh, page one, uh, and or page zero, but page one where uh, in the two thousand area where the traditional video memory lies. You can put it there, and uh, when you uh, then push values onto the stack, what happens is they get memory shadowed into bank E one in the two thousand area, which is actually where the two GS frame buffer lives, the super high res page. So uh, the stack operates at the full clock speed of 2.8 megahertz. So using this memory shadowing and stack relocation technique, you've actually just kind of worked around uh, the, the video memory uh, limit of 1 megahertz. So it's, it's a very clever technique. Of course, the trick is then you have to do all of your pixel writing by uh, pushing and popping things off the stack and moving the stack pointer around, <laughs> which is a very strange way to write to video memory. Um, so for example, if you're going to fill a rectangle, you know, you put the stack pointer at the end of one line of your rectangle and you push a bunch of bytes on. And see, the, the other nice thing about this technique is pushing moves the pointer for you. Uh, again, you get that pointer math for free then. So you can just do a whole bunch of pushes uh, and it writes those pixels pixels into video memory and moves the pointer for you, and then you can move it up a line and keep going. So, uh, you know, it's it, it's it gets pretty into the weeds once you start uh, uh, mixing and matching these techniques with some of the new addressing modes, like the stack relative modes and so on that you can do, but uh, that's the basics of this technique, and it's, ex it's exceptionally powerful um, and uh, pretty straightforward to understand once you get all of the pieces and how they fit together. It's actually very easy to implement. Uh, once you understand just which you know soft switches to flip to get things into this mode, uh, and of course it's very it's a very fragile state once you're into this mode because of course you've messed up the direct page, you've messed up a bunch of CPU state and all this uh, to to get into this mode. So you have to save and restore everything you know between drawing to the screen and so on. But uh, it's uh, it's not too difficult to to get this going once you understand it. So I'm going to link to the uh, original Apple Tech Note and the uh, 2GS Epluche uh, book, which is available on archive.org. And uh, I'm also going to link to apple2.gs. That's Dagan Brock's site for uh, amalgamating all these 2GS uh, resources. It's got all tech notes and books and everything that are out there for the 2GS. It's a great resource. And uh, I'm also going to link to kind of the latest developments of this technique, which is uh, Brutal Deluxe has this tool called Mr. Sprite. And uh, so the thing about this weird 2GS stack pushing technique is that it's sufficiently complicated that uh, you really don't want to be writing general purpose code to push data that way. Uh, this is where uh, sprite compiling uh, really shines, where you... 
uh, you write code, I uh, rather you, you, well, you write special purpose code that can just, just knows how to draw one particular sprite and you give it, uh, you know, a place in video memory that you want it to write that sprite. Uh, one of the great things about this 65816 is that it has 16 bit registers, which, you know, doesn't sound like such a big deal, except when you understand that, uh, you can use 16 bit indexes with the indexed addressing modes. So that's huge. That means you can access uh, any position in a 64k bank of memory using uh, an indexed addressing mode. So that is incredibly powerful. And among the many benefits of that is you can refer to screen positions with uh, a single index register. So uh, when you want to draw something on the screen, you can just, you don't have to pass in X and Y coordinates and you're not doing all this crazy 16-bit math, you know, in 8-bit registers like you are in the 6502 just to get access to an entire horizontal line and, you know, all those problems go away. So uh, in, in that sense, the 2GS is really nice. And so uh, Sprite compiling uh, has really been taken to the next level by Mr. Sprite, and they have a really great page that explains how it works. It's essentially, I mean, it's a Sprite compiler, but it's a very, very sophisticated one, and uh, it writes really, really fast compiled Sprite code. And uh, it's also very powerful. It can be sort of your, your entire R pipeline. It, it does all sorts of flipping and mirroring and banking of sprites for you and all these other great tools. And uh, But there, uh, one of the nice things about it is how well documented it is. They've written an entire separate page on their website, which I will link to, which explains the technology behind it and by extension explains this entire process that I've just talked about. It's probably the single best primer on fast 2GS rendering that I've ever seen. And so just reading that, you all understand all these concepts uh, very quickly. So kudos to them for that. Um, and I'll give a little preview here. So all these tools, Mr. Sprite and everything, they are all officially kind of Windows-based, um, but the code is all pretty portable. And so I've actually been working on a Mac version of all this stuff. And uh, I've got it working locally. So someone wants to see an early copy of that, let me know. Um, I've been talking to, uh, uh, to Olivier over there as well, and he's been... Uh, uh, kind of helping integrate some of the changes back in to make it a little more portable. Um, so I'm hoping to get their permission to put the stuff up on GitHub. Assuming that goes goes good, then uh, we'll have uh, Mac versions of this stuff available uh, pretty soon. So uh, that's my spiel on fast 2GS rendering. Uh, if people have questions, feel free to email me. I'm far from an expert on this stuff. Uh, you know, someone like John Brooks or, or Antoine and, and Olivier over at Brutal Deluxe are certainly more acquainted with it than I am, but, uh, you know, I thought I'd just give a high-level overview of, of what people are talking about when uh, when they talk about this stuff. That's really awesome. Thank you very much, Quinn, for that. And um, I would also like to plug Dagan's GS Programmer's Home website a little bit more. Um, it's one that, it's a resource that I think we've mentioned in the past, but we haven't, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe we've given it short shrift by not talking more about it. Um, mm. It's got, um, in addition to all of these manuals, both from Apple and third-party sources on how to program the 2GS, um, there's uh, programmer forums, uh, compilers, and uh, as well as links to other websites that can really kind of help you along your way if you're just learning to program the, the 2GS or you're even if you're interested to find out what, what all that's about. So um, we need to have Dagan on the show, I think, at some point to talk about that stuff because he's he's done some really interesting things as well for programming for the 2GS. Mm -hmm, for sure, yeah. Apple2.gs. Uh, yeah, all the books are, that are up there. Um, 
most of the Apple ones, most of the third-party ones as well. All the Apple Tech Notes are up there. There's a conversation forum. You can go in there and get get questions asked. Um, he's even started a, uh, a translation effort uh, of the French uh, 2GSA Pluché book, which I'm sure he would love assistance with <laughs> if anyone out there is uh, French-English bilingual. Um and has more free time than I do, which is why I have not jumped on that <laughs> myself. Uh, it is an amazing book, but um, yeah, you do you do need a pretty solid grasp of French to uh, to read it. Yep. Uh, so, but yes, uh, Apple Two.gs, good stuff. Uh, all right, I think uh, we've got a eBay segment, do we not? Looks like we do, Quinn. Except that we don't talk about eBay. That's right. Steve Jobs, look what we found on eBay. So as we don't talk about eBay, what are we not talking about? <laughs> All right. Uh, today we are not talking about uh, an item that came up. Uh, it's a home automation system for the Apple II. And I put this in here because uh, I like this stuff and i like this item mm -hmm. um i've always kind of thought that you know trying to think of modern uses for this retro hardware home automation strikes me as something that uh, apple twos can still do quite effectively and in a fun way uh, i've often uh, toyed with this idea of just having my apple two sitting on a desk in you know in the corner of my kitchen or something uh running the the lights and, and whatever in the house and uh, it would be, frankly, pretty easy to do, and uh, it's, it doesn't take a lot of horsepower, so it would be a great use of an Apple II. Uh, so there were official systems for doing this back in the day, and one of them was X10, uh, which still exists. Uh, X10 kind of evolved into Insteon and Smart Home uh, stuff, but uh, yeah, X10 in its pure form does still exist. You can still buy those uh, those lamp controllers and stuff. They're kind of terrible. Uh, they they work through uh, <laughs> by sending signals through the uh, AC power line, which is great in principle, but in practice doesn't work all that well because <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> AC power lines, especially in older houses, are really noisy, and there are issues with phase because half of your outlets are on a different phase from the other half, and <laughs> if you try to send a signal from one phase to the other, the signal actually has to go out into the street through a transformer and back, which then introduces noise from all of your neighbor's houses. <laughs> uh, so if you've ever tried to set up one of these systems, which I have, um, what you get is it'll work great like for a month, and then everything will stop working, and you don't know why, and it's because your neighbor bought a new microwave or something <laughs> like it's it's that it's that weird so there, there's a reason that the better systems now do this with you know uh, mesh networks and wi-fi instead of trying to send signals <laughs> through the uh, the power lines but uh anyway if you want to play with this uh stuff you can still buy it and there was an official apple II interface package to x10 uh with a card that would send con commands to x10 modules so it would be fun to dig up one of these cards and just get it going because as i say the modules still exist and you can still buy them but um uh, I will say it probably works even worse now than it did at the time, uh, because now uh, what's been introduced uh, at a, in a big way in modern homes is uh, switching power supplies. Uh, they exist in every wall wart now. Uh, they used to be fairly uncommon, but now every single charging dongle and wall wart that you have has a switching power supply in it, and those things are very, very noisy. So. Uh, every single USB charger that you have is going to make a mess of this thing. But uh, anyway, uh, it was neat <laughs> to see this uh, system come up on eBay. So uh, we will link to it in the show notes. X10 was always one of those uh, <clears throat> holy grail Apple II products that I, <laughs> I, I lusted and drooled over after, 
less than drooled over when I was uh, younger, but was, you know, I mean, the kits, the kits sold for, you know, hundreds of dollars and, and some of them were modularized. So like you could get like the basic kit for 50 bucks, but if you wanted anything useful out of it, then, you know, there was 20 bucks here, 15 bucks there for parts. <laughs> and, and my yeah. parents were having none of that. So, uh, <laughs> it, it is neat to see that these things still exist in like complete kit form here and there. You can find them on eBay. This one's probably around the original retail price. Looks like 120 yeah. bucks, but, um, yeah, I don't know if, if you, if that's something that you wanted to play with when you were younger and never had the chance, <laughs> stuff like this is, is a good way to go, I think. Yep. Yeah, and uh, you know you could have fun with it too. I mean, nowadays you could throw an Ethernet two in your Apple two and do this over the internet too, probably, and control <laughs> your your lights and stuff uh, that way. Even better. But, uh, yeah, yeah. X ten was always one of those things where yeah, they nickel and dime you to death, and it's also it just it doesn't work as well as you hoped it would, and it's always sort of disappointing. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't know. This sounds like uh, the the plot for a bad you know sci fi movie where some basement dwelling miscreant uses X ten to take over his neighbors' houses and kill everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I I would watch that movie. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're easily amused here on Open Apple. <laughs> we are, especially if there's an Apple II in the loop. That's right. <laughs> we're amused at one megahertz. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. That's it for eBay. And uh, let's, uh, let's do some feedback. Sounds good. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. So uh, we've got a little bit of a backlog here, a couple items for me. Um, so this is actually an old item, but uh, I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. So I want to bring it up. Uh, in a bunch of the soft talk uh, uh, reviews that we've done, we've often talked about uh, Howard Soft and uh, yeah. that one of the funny little companies running run out of some guy's house in Reseda that uh, just had a little text blurb as an ad and uh, made mystery tax software nobody knew anything about. And uh, I think a couple months ago, a user wrote in to tell us that actually Howard Soft still exists and they still make that tax software uh, for, of course, modern machines and they've kept it going continuously. And you could yep. have, <laughs> as this person had, had continuously upgraded their Howard Soft uh, packages and files and kept their tax returns this way all along. So uh, at uh, Kansas Fest, uh, Jeremy Barhide, one of our uh, uh, Australian listeners, flagged me down and he had found one of the earlier ads for Howard Soft that used uh, images because we had only seen the little text ones. So they started to to do better in their later years and uh, they relocated to La Jolla and they got uh, you know a nice logo and they were paying for full page photograph ads. So he sent this to me via email. Uh, I will try and put it in the show notes. Uh, we have some ability to host images on our on our show notes page. So I will try to put that in there. But uh, it's a really funny ad because it's literally a photograph of the front of the package. It says Tax Preparer by Howard Soft. Uh, and above that, filling most of the page, is a photo of a blonde woman looking sort of sultry and s- sort of sideways on a, on a bed or a couch <laughs> of some sort. And that's it. Like for, It's just Tax Preparer software in front of blonde women looking sultry. It's the strangest <laughs> thing. Uh, and uh, the headline is relax. So I, I guess, yeah, that I guess that's using <laughs> sex to sell tax software, but uh, it's, it's very strange and very amusing. So uh, yes, this must be shared. So we will share it. Mm. <laughs> Moving right along. Uh, let's see. Listener Eric uh, writes in to say, 
Hi, Quinn and Mike. Uh, since I learned about the Apple II renaissance that is happening now as retro enthusiasts preserve the unique experiences we had growing up in the 80s, I have been listening to your old shows and you have a goldmine here. Uh, these interviews are precious insights into the wizards who manifested their ideas by pushing their retro machines to the max. They will inspire us to create the next wave where retro technologies partner with modern platforms to create amazing experiences. So uh, I thought that was a nice summary of retro computing uh, in general. So uh, thanks for that, listener Eric. Just don't go back too far, Eric. Some of those uh, early episodes around one, two, and three of Open Apple are really rough, and you're sort of, you know, buyer beware. You're on your own um, if you listen to those. No, I can't be held responsible for any damage. <laughs> yes. Yes. All the years before I joined were just terrible. <laughs> I assume. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> next month's guest is really going to like to hear that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Okay, so moving right along, I uh, got a nice email from uh, listener Simon, uh, who says, I recently bought an Apple IIe Platinum and have been researching display options. I've never owned an Apple II before, so it's all new to me. I love getting emails from retro computing enthusiasts who are new to the Apple II. Maybe they had a Commodore or an Atari back in the day, and they've just gotten into an Apple II uh, now, which I love that. Anyway, so uh, he says, I've never owned an Apple II before, so it's all new to me. Uh, I was having a look at your blog and was looking at the photos of your display in uh, Digital Archaeology Part 2. I can link to that in the show notes. Uh, and it looks like you're getting a really nice picture on your LCD panel. He says, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling me what that setup is. Does that display have a composite input or are you using a converter of some type? Hmm. Uh, great question. And probably one of the number one things talked about in the Apple II world is how the heck do you get a good display, and particularly for 80-column video. So, uh, of course, the two-word answer, as Kansas Fest attendees uh, all know, is Night Owl. So the monitor he's seeing in my blog is a Night Owl security monitor. Uh, it's a 4.3 8-inch monitor with two composite inputs designed for security uh, camera installations. And uh, just entirely by chance, uh, it happens to be really, really great at showing Apple II video. It uh, it shows 80-column text, really, really nice. The colors are vibrant. Uh, it's a great size. It sits nicely on top of the Apple IIc. Uh, it's easy to take apart and paint if you want a color match to your Apple II, as uh, Chris Torrance did, which looks really nice. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, modern LCDs, as we've talked about a lot on the show, are a real crapshoot with the Apple II. Uh, you know, the Apple II signal is not quite NTSC. It's NTSC-ish, and uh, it's really up to uh, how well the converter and scaler in your particular LCD panel is, because, of course, it's taking an analog video signal and mapping it to digital LCD pixels, unlike CRTs, which were more like radios in that they were receiving an analog signal and modifying an analog device based on that signal, namely the electron gun. Uh, the horizontal portion uh, of a CRT monitor is basically a radio. So... Um, that means that uh, they can be much more forgiving with the signal being out of spec because everything is just kind of analog anyway. Whereas once you're once you're doing an analog to digital conversion, now that analog spec really matters because that digital converter is making decisions about this is a pixel, this is not, this is a this is a front porch, this is not, uh, you know, and so on. So um, any LCD will render the Apple II, uh, and most look okay in 40 columns uh, or some of the lower res graphics modes. Um, High-res, regular high-res usually look, looks okay. Low-res always looks fine. But double high-res and 80-column text in particular can be real tricky. And there's really no way to know except just trying it which one is going to work. So uh, that's 
why everybody latched onto the night owl. Uh, I was looking for small 4.3 displays to bring to Kansas Fest, and I found the security monitor was a good search term to use in Amazon and eBay. Uh, so that's how I landed on this thing. I just bought one and it happened to work great. So I spread the word and here we are. Uh, now the night owl security monitor is no longer available. Uh, that company Aww. stopped, stopped making it. Yeah. It's funny. The prices spiked for a while. <laughs> Apple II users started buying them. Yeah. And then they stopped being available. Uh, then they showed up again briefly on eBay. Um, a, uh, someone presumably bought up all the old night owl stock and they were selling them on eBay. And, uh, apparently they were kind of, rejects or some of them were returns we don't know but a lot of people were getting bad ones from that ebay seller uh the ebay seller was replacing them but that's kind of a hassle so anyway uh that's the situation on the composite front now these days we're getting much better uh modern converters so uh nowadays on my apple II, for example i'm using a2 heavens apple II vga scaler uh for the 2c which um or sorry the um apple II C vga uh which is a little box that plugs into the back of the 2c and generates absolutely perfect vga video and it's flawless and it's inexpensive and it just works and i can't imagine doing it any other way now so uh, that's the direction I would recommend people go these days. And uh, he's wor- he has uh, one for the 2E as well. And he's working on a 2GS one, um, uh, Ultimate uh, Apple II, uh, Ultimate Micro. What's Ultimate Micro they're called these days. Uh, Ultimate Micro is also building a universal Apple II HDMI converter. Uh, we saw some previews of that uh, at Kansas Fest. So uh Many great things in the pipe for uh, getting proper video out of your Apple II, but uh, that's uh, yeah, that's the state of the art there. Awesome. All right. Well, that's all the emails I have, actually. Do you have any that you're sitting on, Mike? Uh, I do have one, and maybe we should have covered this in, in the news section, but we'll do it here anyway. Um, <clears throat> AM, the uh, anonymous uh, new <laughs> Apple II news mailer that we hear from every now and then. <laughs> Sent me sent us on a, along a link about um, so everybody's seen the Terminator 1984. If you're an Apple II fan and you've seen it, which you have, you know that the um, display you know when they're showing POV video of the Terminator looking at things, you can see the the key perfect um, object, or the key perfect codes that that were run in Nibble magazine that helped you make sure that your programs were typed bug-free, and you didn't have to go through character by character trying to find errors and things like that. Um, somebody over at uh, Skynetsarmy.net, which is a Terminator uh, fan web page, actually took a closer look, saw that the program that the KeyPerfect had run on was called ovly.obj, um, and hunted down that program in <laughs> Nibble Magazine. And so now we know what program was Creep Perfect was being run on, which wow. I don't, <laughs> right. Um, so I don't know that um, this is um, all that um, groundbreaking, but uh, you know, it just nerds be nerds, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, I love that someone tracked that down. Yep. Oh, internet. <laughs> so that's all I have this month. All right. Excellent. Uh, well, I think that might uh, also wrap it up for the show. Anything, any closing thoughts, Mike? Mm, no, other than to say thank you very much to our uh, 
uh, continued monthly Patreon donors. We really appreciate it. All the money that you donate goes to help with bandwidth. Um, we long ago exceeded our, our free level limit, which I guess is good because that means people are listening, but it does cost us to host and provide this thing. So if you donate by Patreon, uh, that helps us out and we really appreciate it. I'm not going to list names right now because I will forget people and offend. And so, um, just thank you as a group. We really appreciate that. Uh, also thank you, Seth, um, for coming on the show and, Talking about 8-Bit Weapon, that's that's uh, great stuff. We we love it. Yeah, many thanks. And I'll second uh, thanks to our Patreons, our Patreon patrons. You know who you are. <laughs> and uh, we will have a link in that uh, on our main page and, of course, in the show notes if anyone wants to become a Patreon patron and help make sure that uh, poor Mike does not go broke <laughs> and crazy editing and hosting this show. Well, <laughs> uh, it's either one or the other. Please not both. You know, <laughs> so. uh, and again, yes, buy, buy a, a copy of Class Apples uh, from 8-Bit Weapon over on Bandcamp. You can get that now. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you next month. Sounds good. Bye, everybody. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. learning.